The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 2. That's where we're going to hang out. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, we will have the verses on the screens. If you don't own a Bible, let us know. We have lots. We'd like to give you one for free, okay? So what are we doing? We are finishing up our series tonight. It's called Marriage Exposed, taking a raw look into covenant and conflict. And as promised, uh, I'm going to take tonight to answer questions that all of you submitted. So to those of you who asked questions, thank you. I'm going to get to as many of those as possible Uh, And many of them overlap, so some of the answers are going to be kind of consolidated together, Um, but we'll get to as much as we can. Right off the bat, uh, the answer to the most frequently asked question that we received is no. If you poison your spouse and kill them, you cannot remarry biblically. (laughs) You are not free to remarry biblically. As a matter of fact, you won't be free at all. You need to go to prison. If you do that, okay? Uh, I'm just kidding. Actually, no one, no one actually asked that question this time. Uh, a fact that I am very thankful for. So I'm encouraged. I'm ready to go. This, is, this will be a good one, okay? Um, we're going to start this Q&A by reading from Genesis 2. It is arguably the most foundational set of verses on marriage in the whole Bible, especially when you consider other foundational verses on marriage. We're thinking of Jesus teaching in Matthew 19, Paul's letter to the Ephesians chapter 5. Both of those refer to these scriptures in Genesis 2 as a basis for their teaching, which is significant. So uh, we're going to find a compass here to help navigate uh, through the questions that we have tonight. So Genesis 2 should be towards the front of your Bible, not too hard to find. We're going to be in verses 15 through 25, okay? Here we go. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said... This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Praise God for his word. Amen. Now, before I get into uh, the first question here, I want to let you guys know something. As a pastor, I believe it's important for me, real important for me, to pray and think long and hard about what I say and how I say it. And that's in every circumstance, 
and even more so from the pulpit. Uh, This is true of every Christian, actually, based on widespread biblical instruction, but the Bible says that I will be judged with a stricter judgment as a result of the specific part that Jesus has called me to be in his body. And this is why every week I attempt to walk us around issues circumspectly so that we can understand the nuance, so that we can see both sides of each coin, and we can stay out of the gaping ditches on each side of the narrow gospel path that leads to Jesus. However, sometimes in doing that, it leaves room for people to hear what they want to hear or not hear what they don't want to hear. And so as I looked at the questions that came in, I prayed over them and thought through them. I realized that in many cases, the weeks of teaching that we've done in this series up to this, they they have provided answers, at least in principle, to some of these inquiries. And so I think when I'm trying to be careful and nuanced and circumspect, it can lead to the potential for a lack of clarity. So tonight, I'm shooting for clarity, even at the expense of nuance if necessary. Okay? So that was a very careful and nuanced way to say, I'm going to shoot real straight tonight. Okay? And I need you to know it is not because I have a bone to pick or because I'm trying to offend anybody. It is, and I mean this, it's an act of love because the truth is what sets us free. So I'm going to say it plain, and if your feelings get hurt or you're offended, let's talk about it. As I have done the the rest of this series previously, I'm going to stay up here uh, after the service. I'll be available, or you can always call or email if you prefer. If you don't have access to my personal contact info, then hit us up on the website and it'll get to me, okay? Um, I, I don't want anybody to go away grumbling and upset without at least us having a chance to talk about it, okay? And so I know I'm probably creating more work for myself in doing this, but getting us the truth in very clear ways is worth it, basically. Um, Because we don't want to just leave and say, oh, that was a pretty decent sermon on marriage or series on marriage. I found that intellectually compelling. Really what we're looking for is life change. It's going to lead to more victory. (laughs) It's going to lead to more progress in marriages and more progress in the kingdom. Okay, that's why we're doing this. Amen? Okay. Uh, The first question that I'm going to answer is, why is it so important that we prioritize our marriage and our spouse before our kids? Okay, that's a pretty good question. Verse 24 that we read in uh, Genesis 2 can help us with that. I got to flip back. I preemptively flipped. Just a second. Okay. Here's what verse 24 says. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The whole point of raising the children that God entrusts into your care is to train them to be able to leave you. If parenting is done correctly, then the relationship between parents and children is going to change drastically when they leave the house, and this is the way that God designed it. We are called to disciple our children into well-trained and capable disciple-makers themselves. 
not to use them to replace the intimacy that we should have with Jesus or with our spouse. Because when we do that, there's a real high risk of emotionally crippling them as a result. Now, what I'm not saying is that we can't have close, loving, and healthy relationships with our children, right? This is actually part of how we disciple them and teach them to follow Jesus and be a part of the church, his body. The, us having good, solid, healthy, loving relationships with our kids is part of how we teach them to have good, solid, healthy relationships with others, okay? So it's vitally important. But if we use them as an, emotion, an emotional crutch because of an underdeveloped relationship with Jesus or with our spouse, we will harm them and set them up for failure as they try to then go and train the next generation. Now, the extensive teaching that we did on the covenant nature of marriage is also worth considering when it comes to this question. Children are a precious gift. There's no doubt about that. And they're a special relationship. However, when we understand, the, as much as we can, the supernatural joining of two into one that God does between a husband and wife in a covenant marriage, it is easy to see why this supersedes all other possible relationships between humans. Okay? That's a big deal. Now, not only is inverting the relational priority between spouses and children dangerous for the children, it can also wreak havoc on the marriage. When one or both spouses either willfully or unintentionally chooses to invest more in cultivating their relationship with their children than one another, the damage can be devastating. The garden that is the marriage relationship, it can end up so full of weeds from being left uncared for and untended that the love and friendship and mutual discipleship that God intends for husband and wife to provide for each other, that can be choked out. And that is never good. God's design for a healthy and joy-filled home is a mom and dad who love each other and are passionate about serving each other, which teaches by example the beauty of covenant and sacrifice and loyalty to the children. Now, we, of course, serve and love our children as well, but when things get out of order, it always hurts instead of helps. Now, a word to those who aren't in a scenario where what I just described is possible. I'm thinking about single parents and widows and others. Right now, I'm answering a question about prioritizing children over spouses, okay, and why that is not biblical or beneficial. But what that doesn't mean is that if your situation is broken because the world is not as it should be, that doesn't mean God doesn't have other ways for children to learn these lessons that they need to in order to be all that God made them to be. Okay, so be encouraged in that. As a matter of fact, this is really part of where the church comes in. We have talked here many, many times about the idea of gospel mothers and fathers and the importance of all of us seeking to fill these roles in the lives of people. And I can't speak for every other church, but I can say that I am consistently blessed by how many people take this idea seriously and walk it out here at Love City. 
The last consideration on this topic that I'm going to give you is, is how many married couples throw all of their emotional energy into their children while they have them and then end up feeling hollow and like they have no purpose once they are out of the house. If our homes are prioritized the way the scriptures teach, then the biblical mission of marriage will be active while raising the children. It will help to train the children And that mission will continue after they are launched from our homes and into the world to fulfill the purpose that God has for them. Amen. Based on your silence, I didn't realize how many nerves that subject was going to touch, but if that's an indicator of where we're headed tonight, it's going to be good. All right. I thought that was the easy one. (laughs) Okay. (sighs) Let's go. The next question is, what does submission and leadership look like practically? And here's the reality, guys. This is a hard question to answer because most of the time, people are looking for examples when they say practically. And the problem with examples is, we can end up creating standards or expectations that the Bible doesn't. Okay? So, I asked Natalie what she thinks leadership looks like practically. And I think her answer illustrates the point I'm trying to make because it's still mostly principle. And I asked her, give me a practical definition, but it's, it's, it's this, I'll just read what she said and you'll see what I'm talking about. Natalie's my wife, if you're not aware. Uh, a true biblical leader of the household is someone that disciples your family well and takes responsibility for the choices and actions in your household, knowing that you ultimately answer to God. I think that's a really great answer. Uh, I would give her an A-plus on that. But it isn't really what people mean when they say practical. Um, again, looking for examples, and that's, that's tough to do, unless, I mean, what I could do is just tell you how we do everything and then create a bunch of little mini, you know, replications of our marriage and life, but that's not what the Bible calls us to. And that's weird. That's what they call a cult. Uh, So we're not doing that here. (laughs) We're skipping that. Um, But make sure you get your Kool-Aid on the way out. And drink it all. Okay. (laughs) Here's here's the reality. The reality is that each marriage and each home is different because the people are different. I could give you the ways we do prayer and family study and worship, but those may not work for your family's rhythm. God has called us to these things, but he has left room for people in in different times and places, in different family structures, to prayerfully and intentionally figure out the specifics. The key here is that you intentionally and prayerfully figure out the specifics, all right? Other than what the Bible states plainly, which are the principles that we've laid out in this entire series, everything else is negotiable. How are household tasks divided? Um, who does what with the kids? How exactly do we do discipleship in our home? The Bible doesn't spell these things out because we are meant to take the principles and apply them in our context, and this may look different uh, in the specifics for a whole host of reasons. You know, I'm just imagining people in other countries and all kinds of different family structures and situations and work schedules and all kinds of things, right? Right? Uh, right down to the temperament of the parents and the children. Some of that may factor in. 
You know, um, I fully anticipate that part of how I disciple Lucy, my daughter, is going to be different than how I disciple Max, my son. If I tried to give you a list of here's the 10 things you need to do in order to lead your home well as a godly husband, and I just use the examples of what's going to work with my kids and my wife, I, I could really set you up for failure. Because if you try to go transpose that onto your family who are different people, that's not going to work. I'm not saying there's not general principles and we can't learn from one another different techniques and in specifics, but uh, it, what I don't want to do is sit up here and say that, and just tell you about my life and say, that's what practical biblical leadership looks like. Because again, that gets weird real quick, okay? Uh, there are people willing to do that, and if that's what they're doing, quit listening, okay? All right. Um, really tried hard for one, so one practical example we have that I think can apply broadly, uh, and this is something we've worked out over the years, um, it has to do with decision-making. So some people are like, well, what is, you know, you got husbands leading and wives helping on the mission of everybody serving Jesus. And so how, you know, what does that look like? How, how do decisions get made? Well, for us, what we've done is we, we try to work and pray towards consensus unless a decision has to be made. So what that means is, if there's a decision to be made in our home, I don't, uh, you know, I don't stand up and, and kind of wipe off my husband's sheriff badge and say, thus saith the Lord, this is the decision. Right? Like, I know that God has given me Natalie, who is intelligent and gifted, and she's a real Christian, and so... Part of the gift of God she is to me is that when we have a decision to make as a family, I get the value of her perspective mixed into <laughs> coming up with the solution. Um, and so we're, the, the point is, if, if we have something that we got to figure out, and we start out with, I think we should go left, and she says, we think we should go right, we're going to keep praying and talking about that, thinking about that, talking to one another about that. And we're going to work to try to figure out, get to a point where both of us agree we should go left or right. Up and until, if there's a point where it's like, well, either we turn right or left right now or we go over a cliff, right? And I'm, this, let me think of a practical example of what this is. Um, I'm not talking about where you eat type decisions. I'm talking about, um, you know, a big financial decision or something to do with the kids' schooling, right? A big decision the family needs to make that's going to affect the trajectory of what we're doing. Okay, so if there's time, we're going to keep working towards a consensus. If we run out of time and we still can't come to a consensus, then our understanding of what the scriptures teach is that then I'm going to make the decision, okay? And if you ask Natalie about that, she would say, I'm real glad that when it comes down to cliff time, I'm not the one that has to make the decision. I'm glad that he's going to have to answer to Jesus about the decision. Now, not every wife's necessarily going to take that, <laughs> that approach, but that is how that's worked out for us. And ultimately, what I think is important about that and trying to give you a practical example is biblical leadership isn't that I'm a little mini Caesar wannabe tyrant in my home and all the decisions I just make them because, well, Ephesians 5, right? I really am hoping, and, and I, you know, I couldn't, I probably could count on one hand how many times it's come down to, well, a decision has to be made and I just had to make the decision, it doesn't happen that often because other than that, I want Natalie's input. <laughs> I value Natalie's input. Uh, and 
it's best if we can work together. And there's many times where if we started out that she wanted to go left and I wanted to go right, after we talk about it, pray about it, think about it a little bit, we end up going left because she was right. Okay? We go right sometimes too. Okay? Jeez. Okay. Uh, all right, where are we at? So part of why that, I'm giving you that practical example, is I, I want you to see, I, I don't see her as a subordinate, but as an equal with a different role. And I really think that's what the Bible teaches about how marriage is structured. Sometimes the way she helps me is by seeing things I don't see, and, and that includes times when I might be dead wrong. Okay, And I think that's a practical example of what good biblical leadership looks like. A good, godly husband is going to be wise enough to open the door for his wife to have that kind of input. And know that that's part of what God put her there for. That's part of what helper means. Helper doesn't mean get me a sandwich. (laughs) Right? You ladies missed a great amen spot there. I don't know what I have to do. Do I need to get a sign that tells you when? I don't. I mean, I line you up with these one-liners and you stare. Come on. Oh, is that what it is? I think I just taught against that, but all right. If I haven't yet, we'll get there. <laughs> We're on the way. Amen. Okay. Uh, the, so this will be the last question, and it's going to take us the longest. So and this actually was the most common one. Uh, it came in, in in different forms, but basically the crux of it is How are wives supposed to respect their husbands and submit to their leadership if they are doing a poor job of leading biblically? Okay? Uh, First thing I'll say is, is honestly, I need you to know this. This is a very complex question. And in many cases, there's there's going to need to be discussion of the specifics in order to determine a biblical faithful course of action. I'm going to do the best I can to give you kind of some wide lane guards here, but when it comes down to this, there's a lot of specifics that need to be known because just for an example, without sitting down with a couple and talking to them, I don't know, is he actually being unbiblical in what he's doing or are you just being a cantankerous wife? Because that can happen. Or is it the opposite, that you're doing everything you can to try to help steer your family towards Jesus and, and he's being a total knucklehead? I don't know, and there's, diff- there's different approaches and things we need to deal with, right, <laughs> depending on what's going on. So, um, <clears throat> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of scattershot this and, and just know that in situations like this, this is where talking to community group leaders, this is where we're talking to other Christians, this is where we're getting pastoral care involved. You know, this is part of why the church exists, is to help walk people through these things. It's, it's complicated, okay? But uh, I do want to read you an account from the Old Testament that it'll hopefully help us reframe our understanding of respect and submission and what we read earlier, that God created Eve as a helper for Adam. I think we need to reframe that probably fairly often. But before I do that, I want to speak a word to the husbands, uh, partially because... This was the most frequent question. What I'm about to say to the husbands is not unlike something I've already said in this series, but I want to say it even more plain. 
I'm also going to have the Apostle Paul do some of the heavy lifting for us. We saw in Ephesians 5, we were there for two weeks, that the big job of husbands is they're called to love their wives like Christ loved the church. And so what I'm going to do now is read you a glimpse that I want you to pay very close attention to. And when I start reading it, you're going to go, oh, I know these verses. And I want you to shut that voice down and listen very carefully to what these verses say. Okay? Because husbands are called to love their wives like Christ loved the church. And we need help filling in what that means practically in a day-to-day clearly for many reasons. So here we go. If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing." Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things and believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, and reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Husbands, It is time to grow up. What we need to not have happen is if we have an opportunity for a QA, and a the most frequent question we have come up out of this church is, what do I do if my husband's not following the Lord faithfully? How do I navigate this whole submission? We need to quit putting wives in that situation, period. And a big part of the problem is just that a lot of men are acting like boys, And it needs to stop. If you've got some besetting sin that you're stuck in, quit acting like a boy. Get help. Do whatever is necessary. Chuck your computer out the window. I don't care what you have to do. Love demands that you take it seriously. And do something about it like a man. Amen. If you don't know what to do, Come back to 1 Corinthians 13 and read it till you get an idea. If you still don't know what to do, talk to your community group leader. Talk to an older man in the faith in you. Talk to a pastor. Talk to somebody. But quit doing nothing. Something's got to change. Our homes need leadership. Our wives need to be loved like Christ and led like Christ. Our children need godly fathers who are intentional, engaged, and on mission. We need love to reign. Things got to change. Amen. Now, we're going to look to the story of Abigail in 1 Samuel 25 for some help with this question. What question are we answering? 
How do wives respect and submit to their husbands when they are not doing a good job leading the home biblically? All right, I'm going to read to you 1 Samuel 25, 2 through 38. You can turn there if you're quick. If not, you can just listen. This is a rad story, okay? 1 Samuel 2, sorry, 1 Samuel 25, 2 through 38. Now there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings. And he was a Calebite. That David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, visit Nabal, and greet him in my name, and thus you shall say, have a long life. Peace be to you and peace to your house. Peace, to be all that, peace be to all that you have. Now I have heard that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. So there's not confusion here. Basically David at this point is leading a band of armed men, and they're kind of doing like security work, okay? And so it was understood back in that day, uh, even if David hadn't met Nabal here, uh, Nabal's shepherds, if they were out, you know, moving the flocks around and stuff, they were at constant risk of animal attacks or marauders coming and trying to steal and whatever. And so what David did is stationed some of his guys around Nabal's uh, shepherds and protected them. And, And it was basically understood that if somebody did that for you, that when it came shearing time, right, that you would share some of that, you would be grateful for the security, okay? So that's what's going on. When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from their master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men whose origin I do not know? So David's young men retraced their way and went back, and they came and told him according to all these words. David said to his men, each of you gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David, while 200 stayed back with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them. While we were in the fields, they were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the time we were with them tending the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all his household, and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine, five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. She said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. It came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that behold, David and his men were coming down toward her. So she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain I have guarded all that this man has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if I by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belong to him. You understand what I'm saying? David said in a real kind of poetic Old Testament kind of way, I'm about to go kill everybody because of this insult. Okay, that's where David's head is at. 
When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you and listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal, for his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has restrained you from shedding blood and from avenging yourself by your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek evil against my Lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound up in the bundle of the of living with the Lord your God. But the lies of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me, and blessed be your discernment, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. Nevertheless, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from harming you, unless you had come quickly to meet me, surely there would not have been left to Nabal until the morning light as much as one male. So David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you and granted your request. Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. About ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. Okay, now, there is an interesting dynamic here. <laughs> the positive lesson here is, is more in how Abigail deals with David than with Nabal, her husband. I will say this. I don't think Abigail needed to talk smack about Nabal as much as she did in order to accomplish what she did with David. Even though everything she said was true, Nabal's an idiot. But aside from that, aside from her doing that, which I think probably was, could have fallen under the rubric of disrespectful, Aside from that, I think we have a pretty good picture of what a biblical helper looks like, okay? Now, we have to remember that helper is a name that God takes for himself. It is not a put-down or a negative term. God himself calls himself our helper, okay? So you, you, gotta, you gotta take that into consideration. That's a major deal. Now, first of all, this is one of dozens of biblical examples that I can think of where strong women are portrayed in the scriptures. It baffles me to no end that people think the Bible wants to box women into weakness and, and mindless compliance, okay? Abigail was clearly no joke. Nabal didn't know it, but she was helping him out big time, right? Had she not had the intelligence and the bravery to ride out to meet David, he would not have survived the night. How tough do you have to be 
to ride out and meet a band of dudes with swords and all hopped up on testosterone ready for a fight. That's not weak need. That's, 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 that's iron spine right there. Okay? But what we really, we start to get the crux of Abigail being able to help with our question here when we see how she deals with David. We're still answering the question, how does a wife respect and submit and still help her husband if he is not doing a good job leading the family biblically? I'm going to read you verses 28 through 31 again. Look at how Abigail deals with David. Think about the question that we're asking. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. Keep in mind what David's doing. He's riding out to kill a guy and all of his people basically because he snubbed him. Now, we, this is even more foreign to our ears because we aren't, you know, an ancient kind of Near Eastern culture where honor was a lot bigger deal. And so David, it's not as wild as it would seem to us that David's doing this, but this is still way out of bounds. David's in sin here. He's dead wrong in what he's doing, okay? Here's how she responds to him. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house. What's she doing? She's talking about the promises she knows that God's made to David. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in all your days. Should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord should be bound up in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the life of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. So not only does she talk, is she talking to David about the promises she knows God's made to him. She's talking about him being made rule over Israel. She's talking about things that God, she knows God's already said to him. She also is reminding him of God's faithfulness in the past. You remember that reference to what's going to happen to his enemies? That they'll be thrown out as if from the hollow of a sling? Why do you think she mentioned that? You think that's coincidence? It's not coincidence. She's reminding this guy who's riding with 400 guys to come kill a dude over an insult that God used him to fell Goliath. Think about who you are, man of God. That's what she's saying to him, really. She's speaking to the man of God in him. This is what God has promised. This is where God is taking you. This is what God has done with you. How can someone like that, who knows the word of the Lord, who has been used by God in such mighty ways and has yet to be used in mighty ways by the Lord, how are you going to act like this? Instead of nagging him or wagging her head in disgust at how immature and foolish he's being, she spoke to the man of God in him. She reminded him of how God had been faithful in the past and what God had promised in the future. Guys, if she had come out there Z-snapping, you know, ready to tell him about himself, wagging around, she would have been cut down in the road and he would have continued on and laid waste to everything Nabal had, including him. It's not how she did it. Well, that's because she was weak and under the thumb of her husband. Sure doesn't seem that way. Seems like she was intelligent and godly and knew how to deal with a man who was in folly. 
Now, this is, I'm anticipating that this is where some of the buts will tend to start. But, well, what if he doesn't respond well? Or, but why would I reward his bad behavior? Look, ladies, you can do what you want, but I'm telling you, Abigail knew how to deal with a man who was rushing headlong into foolishness. She reminded him of God's goodness and faithfulness and called him to live in light of that. Let me say that again. She reminded him of God's goodness and faithfulness and she called him to live in light of that. Well, that's just a Bible story. Well, that, that's not a smart thing to say anyways, but I, I can tell you that Natalie did this once for me. I was 19 or 20 years old. And somebody in my family, I'm going to try to keep this real vague to protect the parties involved, but somebody in my family called me and told me that a full-grown man was putting his hands on children and on a woman. And the way I was raised, it was not correct, but the way I was raised, if, if a man puts his hand on a woman, there's no more discussion, there's no, we don't even talk about it anymore, that guy is going to swallow his teeth, or worse. And so these people lived about seven hours away, and so I got off the phone, started getting things ready around the house, and, and I'm just telling you what it was. Remember that I told you I was 19 or 20 years old, okay? This was a long time ago. We're married. We're living in our first house. You know, it's all, you know, year one or two, perfect bliss. And uh, so I'm just, I'm just kind of getting things together, and here was, here's where I was at, right? You know, David was riding in to kill Nabal. This, this is the God's honest truth. I, I owned a shotgun at that point. I know I wasn't 21 because I didn't own a handgun yet. And my intention was to get in my truck, drive out there, take that shotgun, use the butt of it, hit this guy in the face, flip it around, stick the shotgun in his face, and see what happened. That's where I was headed. There was no more questions needed to be asked. Children that I loved and a woman that I loved that was in my family was being abused by this guy, and we were just going to see what his answer was. My wife, instead of freaking out, screaming, crying, telling me how stupid I was, because that's stupid, can I just say that? I'm not justifying what I was doing. That was really ignorant. Part of it is I was 20, okay? And part of it is I, I still had some deprogramming from the way I was raised that needed to happen. So Jesus is still working on me, still is today. But what my wife did was, as I was heading towards the door, she just gently grabbed my arm, turned me around, hugged me. She kissed me on my mouth and said, hey, I think you should call and talk to our pastor before you head out there. Didn't get frantic, didn't panic. And she's, we're the same age. So as young as she was, she had the good sense to deal with me that way when I was in that place. And so I said, okay, I'll do that. Called him up. By God's grace, God used him and in the way he talked to me and kind of brought me up out of that seeing red, ready to go do something crazy. And, and I couldn't, once, once my mind clicked out of that, it's like, oh my gosh, what was I about to do? Like, I'm going to go out here and start, you know, the Hatfields and McCoys, <laughs> and I'm going to end up in jail or dead or God knows what. But none, I swear to you, none of that even crossed my mind up and until the point where my wife, by the power of the Spirit of God and because of wisdom and discernment, dealt with me the way she dealt with me and called me to talk to somebody before I made this life-altering decision. And so I'm just saying, ladies, if you're like, well, that worked for Abigail, I don't ever see that working for me. I'm just telling you, it does. 
there's another but I'm anticipating. Well, well how long and, and how many times do I have to do this? If you're a wife dealing with a husband like this. Well, I, 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 would, I would ask a question to your question. How long do you want to be apart? And how long do you want to be a part of helping him and helping God and respectfully and lovingly pushing your husband to be a more godly man? How long do you want to be a part of helpfully and respectfully pushing your husband to be a more godly man? Because however long you want to do that is how long you need to ask for God's help to be able to call to the man of God in him instead of trying to nag him to death or manipulate him or some other way get him to modify his behavior. I got one that's good. The rest of you aren't sure. Okay. And, and Okay. So maybe you don't like that answer because you're worried that he's going to get away with being an immature bonehead indefinitely. Uh, a guy that's unwilling to grow or change forever. Maybe you're worried about that and you're like, well, that doesn't seem just or fair. Well, let me just read you verse 38 again in response to that concern. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. <laughs> that's kind of funny. <laughs> but what I'm trying to tell you, there's two things I want you to know from that. If you're a wife who is weary in this process of trying to respectfully and helpfully push your husband towards leading your family in a more godly way and just being more godly in general, uh, know this, that nobody gets away with anything. God is just and vengeance is his. And you can only control what God has called you to. And God will deal with a husband who just continually, perpetually decides he's going to be a bonehead at, at the expense of the people around him who he's supposed to be loving and caring for and taking responsibility for. You don't have to bring punishment down on him. God can handle that. I'm not saying he's going to kill him. But also, if you're sitting there going, well, that's Old Testament. Whew, I'm sure glad God doesn't do that. Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit about how much offering they gave after Jesus died and rose from the grave, and they dropped dead too. I'm not trying to scare one here and say God's running around lightning bolting people. I'm just telling you, God will deal out justice. And so there's a word to the wives there, but husbands, there's a word to you there. Go read verse 38. Next time you're tempted, just keep on keeping on with your old self, doing what you feel like doing instead of walking in the love of God, laying yourself down to love your wife and your family like Christ loved the church. Ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. There's a life verse for you. You get that one tattooed on your forearm. You can look at it every time you feel stupid. Whew, yes. 1 Samuel 25. Glory to God, Nabal. Lord got him. <laughs> All right. And it, here's something else, okay? So Nabal dies. And we see Abigail's godliness rewarded in verse 39. Let's read. This is wild. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from evil. The Lord has also returned the evil doing of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent a proposal to Abigail to take her as his wife. Y'all, David wifed her up. 
And here's what I want you to see in that. Real men don't want a weak, timid wife they can rule over. They want a strong, godly wife they can run with. Why do you think David, when Nabal died, sent a proposal for Abigail to be married? It says she was beautiful, yes, but more importantly, she was intelligent and she was brave. And David was the kind of guy that needed a wife that knows when it's time to roll, she can step up to the challenge. He saw the grit and the strength of this woman, and he wasn't going to let her get away. Put a ring on it. Right then and there. It don't even seem like Nabal was cold yet. <laughs> what am I doing? I know, I know lots of what I'm saying is hard. I know there's still lots of butts that I didn't cover. But ladies, I'm telling you right now, if you genuinely want a biblical answer to the question, how do I love and respect and how do I submit to a husband that is not doing a great job leading our family biblically, I'm telling you right now, Abigail's a good example. You don't have to like it right at this moment, and, and that's fine. But I'm going to ask you to at least pray about it and at least go back and read this some more and let the Holy Ghost work on it. Some, some of the wives that ask this question, you're asking the question because of sin in your husband's life. And, and I've, already, I've already called them to grow up and to deal with that. And what I'm about to say in no way excuses them, but I want to ask you a question, okay? If, if you're walking down the street with your husband and four guys jump out of an alley and they start beating him to death, what are you going to do? Okay? There's no one around, help's too far away. If you stand there and cry or you run away in fear, he's dead. I want to ask you what you would do in that situation. Are you going to start yelling at him and telling him that you told him you didn't want to take a walk that night in the middle of the beatdown? Are you going to start telling him he's so dumb for going that way? He should have seen those guys? Hopefully not. Hopefully you're going to kick some growings or scratch some eyes or pick up a brick and dome somebody. You can laugh at that. It's funny. And I'm not saying that's the only way chicks know how to fight. I know some of you women here could whoop your husband hands down, no problem. I'm just going to look up. That way I don't make eye contact with anybody that, uh, that I know that's true about. Um, let me look at these notes some more. Uh <laughs> huh. Here's here's why why that. There's a reason. Regardless of your actual reaction to this fictitious scenario I just threw at you, if your husband is fighting with sins in his life, you have the same choice spiritually. You can stand there and cry. You can run away, or you can get in and fight with him. You can either be a strong helper like Abigail, or you can pile on and make it worse, or you can run away and not deal with it. Those are all options on the table. But many of you ask me, how do I do this in a biblical way? And I'm pointing you to Abigail as a good example of that. I, I can anticipate one more but here, the but being, but, but I don't have the kind of, I'm not an Abigail. 
I don't have the kind of strength she had. And what I want to say to you is, I know that it can be exhausting and overwhelming to be in this kind of battle, especially with a spouse, and, and, and you're, you're feeling like part of what's going on there is you're being injured by that, so it's hard to then want to fight for them and with them. But here's what you need to know. Abigail didn't go out and do what she did in the strength of Abigail. The same strength that anointed David to be able to take down the giant with a sling and the lion and the bear before that is the same spirit of God that anointed Abigail to go out before a troop of 400 guys with swords, bow low, and hope she didn't get killed. What am I saying? No one ever has this kind of spiritual strength on their own. Nobody does. Let me read you something from Ephesians. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. When he raised him up from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here's what I'm saying. The same, if you belong to Jesus... And this is what these scriptures in Ephesians are saying. He's saying, he's saying that he wants the eyes of the heart to be enlightened so you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe in the strength of his might. And he's talking about it's the same power that brought Christ up out of the grave. It's the same power that allowed the God who wrote these scriptures to speak all things into existence. The power that took the dead body of Christ and raised it up out of the grave. That power is alive and working in you. And so ladies... Husbands dealing with difficult wives, whoever it is dealing with a spouse and you feel like you're tired and there's no way I can take the Abigail route, friend, I get it, but this is not based upon your energy level or perceived emotional strength. The question is, can the same power that raised Christ from the dead empower you to live in such a way that you are joining in the fight against sin for your spouse and being a part of God's great plan to take both of you and do something more with the two of you than he ever could have done with each of you individually. Can that happen? Can the Spirit of God do what needs to be done? The question is not in your ability, in your strength, and how much you have left in the gas tank. It's how much power does God have? The answer is enough. And then some. This is where the strength to be a loving and self-sacrificing husband comes from. This is where the power to be a strong and respectful wife comes from. It comes from believing the gospel and living it out in the power of the Holy Spirit. That is where the strength for these things comes from. The gospel reminds us constantly that we are all sinners. It reminds us constantly that we can do nothing apart from Christ. It reminds us constantly where our help comes from. It reminds us constantly of God's great power and his goodness towards us. It is the beautiful truth of the gospel, first believed and then practiced in the way that we love and serve each other. It's that that will lead to marriages which glorify God and bring us joy.
Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, we thank you for these verses. Thank you that you started off right in Genesis 2, showing us your good intention for marriage. God, I thank you for the questions that were asked. I thank you for uh, the truth of your word. That, Lord, even though many of these things are, are complicated and difficult, we know, Lord, that uh, your power is sufficient, that your truth sets us free. And so, Lord, uh, I just ask that uh, you would make up for all the gaps in my ability to communicate these, these deep and precious truths, and I ask you would minister to the hearts of the people uh, who are struggling, those that even think they're doing good, don't know where there's room to grow. God, I just ask that you would move mightily by the power of your Spirit through marriage covenants, uh, and just continue to mold and shape those people. Use them to mold and shape one another. God, help us to have a vision for loving and serving and mutually discipling one another, and help us to keep our homes in the right order, God, and to see the wisdom of why you've structured things the way you have. Lord, really what all of this comes down to at the end of the day is are we submitted to you? Do we believe your word about these things? Are we willing to trust you in faith, when we can't see necessarily the results right away. God, I just ask, Lord, this, this can be hard. The emotions can be absolutely gut-wrenching. God, there's, there's so much here. The brokenness can run so deep. And so, Lord, we just want to join the man in the scriptures that said, we believe, but help our unbelief. Because what this comes down to many times, Lord, is just we need more faith. We need more of an ability to trust by your grace and your power because of your great mercy, Lord. We need to be able to trust that what you said you will do, you will do. And Lord, so I, I just ask that, um, I ask that you would anoint every single husband within the sound of my voice so that hears this, anoint them to love like you. I ask you to put a burning fire in their belly that they will settle for nothing less than absolute radical sacrificial service taking responsibility in the mold of Christ, loving first and loving deeply. I pray for every wife within the sound of my voice so that hears this message, God. And I ask that in the spirit of Abigail, Lord, they would be able to stand with faces like flint, with spines like steel, that they would not wilt under the pressure and the difficulty of hard situations, that they would not fall into that mold, that lie, that people think that, that Christians want women to be weak, Lord. Your word is full of strong women who stood, strong wives who stood and did what needed to be done. God, I just ask you would anoint and empower each one of us to do what it is we need to do, to contribute to healthy, joy-filled marriages that bring you glory. And I just ask, God, that, that by your Holy Spirit, you continue the great work you've begun in all of us. We're trusting in your promise to do so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.